Moments after the Christchurch, New Zealand massacre, the shooter posted the horrific footage on Facebook. And by the next day, there were over 1.4 million copies of the video on Facebook. But thanks to an artificial intelligence tool, Facebook was able to erase those videos within 24 hours. Uh, if someone would search really hard enough nowadays, they may still find copies, but the intent to bring all of those down is still ongoing. In this case, there's a very clear right and wrong. We don't want to circulate footage of a massacre, and no human being should have to sit down and manually delete millions of copies of that video. But when the stakes aren't so high, who makes the decisions about what lives in our digital spaces and what's removed? Meaning what might be deemed as needing to be censored here in Europe may be protected speech back in the U.S. So that is where policies, regulations, and culture now comes together with technology. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how to be a little bit safer on the internet. My first guest is Ariel Pinto. He joins us from Wales, where he's on a Fulbright scholarship studying the effectiveness of AI in addressing online terrorism. Ariel Pinto is a professor of engineering management and systems engineering at Old Dominion University. Ariel, you're working on an AI tool that can detect and delete online terrorism. What is online terrorism and why would you delete it? What's an instance of that? Right. So uh, we call it content moderation. Uh, it is a way for postings, video, messages, anything that the public may post in social media or store in publicly available uh, cloud services. And the reason there is a need for that is because nowadays there are many postings that may not satisfy the terms and conditions of usage of various internet platforms and may not be acceptable within the community that they serve. Do you have an example of a major online terrorism incident that's required the assistance of AI in deleting it? Yes. Uh, several years ago, we may remember the massacre that happened in Christchurch in New Zealand. And that was live-streamed in a popular social platform. Uh, eventually, the social platform took down the video several minutes after it has concluded. And that was Facebook, right? Yes, that was Facebook. Right. And in the following 24 hours to that, there were more than 1.5 million uploads of copies of that video in Facebook. And Facebook was able to bring most of them down. Uh, if someone would search really hard enough nowadays, they may still find copies. But the intent to bring all of those down uh, is still ongoing. It was such a horrible thing. And horrible also that it should have been live streamed with such hideous malice. So clearly it's a terrible video, but who's responsible for deciding who can see it and where it should reside? Do you, do you know what I mean? Who, who makes that ethical decision? Right. So the first gatekeeper would be the internet platform, because obviously that content would be contrary to their uh, terms and conditions of use. Uh, the question now would be how much effort should internet platforms, whether the big ones like Facebook or smaller ones that may not be familiar to many of us, how much effort 
and how effective should their effort be in taking down similar types of contents. So what is the argument for taking down and requiring the takedown of horrible videos like that? What's the argument that if they're left out there, then what can happen? The more common incidences would be contents that can influence uh, certain segments of society to be radicalized. And that is also an ongoing concern right now, uh, given the geopolitical situation and various uh, social unrest happening all over the globe. You're in Wales on a Fulbright scholarship at the School of Law. What are you looking at regarding the law when it comes to the use of AI and deleting these videos? Uh, here in Wales, in their uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law, we are looking at how evolving policies, regulations, and laws that may compel internet platforms uh, to use AI may affect the entire ecosystem of social media and other internet platforms. Uh, loss pertains to those, let's say, fines or penalties that internet platforms may be leveled with in case they do not do what uh, the society expects them to do. And we all know artificial intelligence is not cheap nowadays. So the question is, if the bigger companies like Facebook and Twitter can do it, well, how about the smaller companies? Should they be subject to the same stringent laws and policies as the bigger companies? It may be a question of capabilities and resources. Since you've been doing this research in the last few months in Wales, has anything there surprised or even shocked you? Uh, yes, uh, particularly uh, coming from the U.S., I saw that uh, difference in the perspective on content moderation. Uh, we've heard of uh, how postings in the U.S. are guaranteed freedom of expression. And then the debate now comes is uh, what type of expression needs to be moderated and there is no simple answer to that because uh, we recognize that is based on community standards, meaning what might be deemed as needing to be censored here in Europe may be protected speech back in the U.S. So that is where policies, regulations, and culture now comes together with technology. And uh, I may also add that because of the global nature of many internet platforms, the notion of culture, religion, and differences in language also becomes a barrier in consistently implementing any rules in content moderation. You know, you haven't been in Wales that long, and yet, with all of your experience and study of this kind of issue, you say you were still surprised at how pronounced the difference is between the attitude toward this in America and the European nations. What have you experienced there about that yourself? Yes. So uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, dialogue on this issue, the notion of slippery slope has always arose, meaning if such responsibility is provided to the internet platform, then they may end up censoring uh, beyond what the community demands. While here in Wales and UK in general, that is less of a concern. Uh, they are more after how can we have more effective content moderation and less discussion of are we going down a slippery slope. Why do you think there's so much contention over slippery slope in America? I believe because of our high regards for uh, freedom of expression is that there is not yet 
a definite line on where that freedom of expression ends and where content that needs to be put down uh, lies. So it's still a gray area and the usual argument would be, well, who will police that gray area? Was it something of a relief to realize that while, let's say, you yourself come from America where people worry about the slippery slope, was it nice to see civilized nations saying, yes, but that's not really a grave concern. We don't think it will happen. Yes, it is a relief. I think at the end that uh, difference in perspective will uh, allow the development of technology that has wider capability, that can adapt to various expectations, whether it be in the U.S. or in Europe, and that uh, moving expectation. Because what might be acceptable today may not be acceptable next year. But you know, people have said for decades, especially more recently with AI has grown, there's a great fear of what we don't know or fully understand. A great fear that if I relinquish this right and give some sort of terrible government that may arise or has arisen that much authority to encroach into our personal lives, much more terrible things could happen than leaving distasteful videos online. What do you say to that? Yes, it is recognized uh, in many uh, levels of our society is that uh, AI could have a great influence in content moderation. But the good thing is there are discussions on how to assure a human-centric application of AI. And when I say human-centric, it is uh, keeping in mind that AI is just a tool that is meant to safeguard rights or to keep uh, the internet safe for the audience. And so they have come up with something like a manifesto, which uh, uh, outlines... Uh, certain parameters that would be construed as human-centric AI, meaning that any tool uh, that would be used has to abide by uh, laws and regulation in that locality, community, or country. Second is that it needs to be trustworthy, meaning, as you said, there must need to be some transparency on how artificial intelligence actually generates and learn from data that it gathers to form the intelligence. You sound to me to be rather confident we can achieve all that. Yes, I am. Uh, I have followed many types of technologies in my 20-year uh, career as a researcher. There is always... Uh, some trepidation when new technologies are being developed. But uh, the social discussion surrounding those technologies eventually form uh, policies, uh, we call it risk governance, where we try to um, uh, make sure uh, we don't have a runaway application of technologies. And if we do, we put a stop to it and learn from it so that it won't happen again. Well, what a joy it is to talk with you. Ariel Pinto, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. It's my pleasure. Ariel Pinto is a professor of engineering management and systems engineering at Old Dominion University. more plugged in, cybersecurity is a growing concern. Quibino Kanadu is a professor of computer science at Northern Virginia Community College. He says the race is on for more cybersecurity experts, and students are stepping up to the plate. Quibino Kanadu has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia.
Kobena, it seems that more and more students across America are gravitating to IT training and cybersecurity fields. Are you noticing that's the case at your college? Yes. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, my front office, which is the IT department, received a call from Walmart cybersecurity team. And um, they asked us, can you bring a couple of your students so that we can interview them? We showed up and uh, in the room, it was full of um, students from UVA, George Mason, Virginia Tech, George Washington University, and even some schools from um, New York. I was surprised. And uh, about 150 students, every single one of them was interviewed. My students called me a couple days ago and says uh, Walmart gave them a second interview and they hired them with a salary of about $98,000 and it blew my mind away. Had the student even finished her college courses? Not, no, not at all. They were pretty much in the starting of their last semester in a community college. And she is just one of countless students that these days are getting the skill set and being snapped up by companies. Yes, a lot of them. A lot of them. As a matter of fact, there's another program that goes across the country. It's called Capture the Flag, where students will meet and then they just compete and try to solve cyber problems. And companies come there just to recruit them and give them offer right in front of them. It's like major league scouts exactly. who know this is where the talent is. Exactly. And you've seen it happen. You've seen students over interview. Over and over and over and over every year. Are these primarily private sector companies like Walmart and others, or are they more likely the government, the Pentagon, the defense agencies? Well, all these companies that you are mentioning, they are contractors for the Pentagon. So basically, when they recruit you, you end up working on, on the Pentagon contract. So. You know, have you noticed that in recent years, there's been an alarming breach of security, cybersecurity at the Pentagon? And I always think, why aren't we better? Why aren't we in America much more secure with our data for the defense system? Well, because we are dealing with state Sponsors in terms of like, let's say, Russia, they may work for the Russian Federation. They have all the capabilities. They have all the resources and they are always ahead of the game. As a matter of fact, there are certain IT technologies that are new. Bad guys actually will discover something about the new technology before even the regular industries will even figure it out. So bad guys are always ahead of the game. This is what is making it difficult for us. Even when you improve something, they will figure out a way to bypass it. They will do reverse engineering to figure it out. Is it Russia, but also other countries that are doing the cybersecurity attacks? Absolutely. I didn't say nothing about North Korea. I didn't say nothing about China. I didn't say something about Iran, right? Is it clear the U.S. government has gone on a major cybersecurity skill-buying spree? Yes, and it is happening right now. It is happening right now. That's why I try to term it or coin it the um, um, economic prosperity, because this is where the jobs is at. They are trying to recruit talent. And you're saying you don't have to be top-level Ivy League college product in order to make the big bucks and to be trained and be good and desirable by these companies. Not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the best people in cyber happens to be people from liberal arts. Some of them like political science, English majors. They are all leading some of the top cybersecurity projects in the country. How long ago did you start teaching at the college level? Well, one day I just walked into the school and I said to them, I want to teach professional IT classes for fun. So I started teaching people how to build computers, how to remove viruses from their computer, right? Everything begins from a small beginning. So I started doing that and one day, Somebody asked me, do you want to teach as a part-time for the degree program? This was in 2014. I came into the degree program teaching as part-time, just two classes. And one thing I felt was like, my students keep saying, you have too much passion for this thing. You need to come into full-time so that we can take more classes with you. So in 2018, I decided to give up my industry high-paying job to come into teaching because I felt it was the right calling for me. Why would you call cybersecurity teaching and IT teaching a calling? It is a calling because I feel like the impact. For instance, one of my daughters, when I asked them, what do you want to do? She said, I want to be a nurse. Why do you want to be a nurse? It's like, when you had COVID, I'm the one taking care of you. I, want to, I just want to help people, right? So for me, it is a calling because the impact, knowing that I can help someone to change their life, 
to change their family's destiny, at the same time too, knowing that what I'm doing is helping defend against attacks against our nation. This is why I call it a calling. Even since 2014 or later 2018, have you noticed an increase in threats to cybersecurity infrastructure? Ah, uh, Yes, absolutely. 2014, it went up. 15, it went up. Maybe 17, it tripled or maybe quadrupled. And we begin to see that the attacks don't drop. It keeps rising up. And do you think these are mostly state-sponsored attacks or individuals looking for weaknesses to get money? Well, it's both. But if you look at the big ones, like things like the, the pipelines and all those things, those are all very skilled folks looking for money. Who's winning, the good guys or the bad guys? <sighs> yeah, very, very important question, isn't it? <laughs> Who is winning? Honestly, I think there's a bright future, but I would say the bad guys are winning. And the reason why I say the bad guys are winning is because they are making a lot of money. If you open, you listen to the news, anytime an attack occurs, especially the ransomware, we keep paying up. So I'll probably say right now the bad guys are winning, but at the same time, there is a bright future for the nation and hopefully for the world because we are educating people to stop the majority of the attacks. Is there some golden standard that you could imagine in the future where we can protect vulnerable data so that it's not susceptible to these kind of pirate attacks? I wish, I honestly, I wish I had answers for that because anytime we advance in technology, it gives us an edge and also gives the attackers an edge. But the best thing we can do, picture a bear following you and your friends and think about it. What should you do? Try to outrun your friends. So the ones who put all those security controls and mitigations in place will try to stop the attack. What do you do now on your own computers, your laptops, your phone, your desktops, that maybe you didn't do six years ago? Well, most of us are using Wi-Fi at home. So I make sure that my Wi-Fi is using the most secure security protocol on my Wi-Fi device. Number two, I make sure that I have an antivirus, right? Always make sure you have an antivirus and it doesn't stop there. Having an antivirus is not good enough because viruses, they change their identity, they mutate. So always make sure you are using the most up-to-date, absolutely the most up-to-date virus update that will basically detect the new threat, if possible. There's plenty of stuff. Multi-factor authentication or maybe two-factor authentication. You sign it into an email and then the email will send to you a code on your phone. I tell people, if you can, Please don't let the code be sent on your phone. And this is the reason why. Because there are situations where people can take control over your phone, right? So when the code is sent to your phone, they can use it. So what I'll tell them is there is an app. You put an app on your phone and then you yourself can use the app to generate the code and enter. Number four, password manager. So with password manager, let's say you have 10 different systems. This is very, very important. And for all the 10 different systems, most people, trust me, most people, this is what they still do. They will have the same password. So when an attacker gain access to your information, guess what they will do? They will go to one of your e they will go to one of your emails and one of your systems and log on. If it works, they will try the other one. And even the other one, if they are not able to log in, they will say, I forgot your password. I forgot my password. And then it will try to send it to your Office 365 email because now it will send a code to them in the email and then they will recreate or change your password, isn't it? So the advantage, this is a very high risk. So the advantage is using password manager. With password manager, it is a low risk. Why? You can create individual password for all your different systems. Make it as long as you want. Even if you want it to be 20, mix it with characters and symbols, and then you save it in a password manager. You know, but isn't it hard? You know people from church, you know older people, and you know very young people. Yeah. Neither the very old nor the very young are very adept at this. Yes. One of the things that I want to see happening is um, for those of us who are knowledgeable in, this com in the community, it is about time for us to have maybe weekend classes or even evening classes, even if we have to go to the nursing homes to volunteer our time to teach their old people how to implement some of these things because it is very basic and uh, some of the old folks are vulnerable to this right here because at this moment, they feel, they feel powerless. And the reason why they feel powerless is because they think this is something difficult to do, but it is not. But the other idea is to make it so easy yes. that it's not complex for them. So to build into all phones, 
laptops, desktops, an easy way to manage your passwords that is part of the system. Yes, I think you are speaking to all the vendors of the Android phones and Apple. So if Apple is listening, this would be something great for them to do, isn't it? If you can build it into the product, that would be awesome. Do you use PC or Mac? Do you use Android or iPhone? But is one or the other more susceptible to hacking? Everything is hackable. I remember the times where I would go to Best Buy and then they would try to advise me buy Apple because it is more uh, secure. I used to buy into it. Even now, people are still saying it. All you have to do is Google what are the weaknesses of Apple products and then you see that everything is vulnerable. Everything is hackable. But in a way, I can say that when it comes to uploading stuff or downloading stuff from the App Store, Apple is probably much more better because that environment, the App Store, is in a better control environment. You have to go through a lot of scrutiny before your, your app will get into the App Store. So probably I would say I'll give that to Apple over Android. Do you have to be one of those people who was terrific in math and calculus in order to succeed in this? Absolutely. Cybersecurity, really, or IT, is kind of like it is divided into two groups. We have the technical and the non-technical, right? And both of them has a very high-paying job, right? Well, of course, the ones with math, those calculus and science really centric, it's like they, they develop stuff. As a matter of fact, they would develop the hacking tools to attack a system. Where the non-technical, the ones who are not good at math cannot do that. So there is a position for everyone. Kobina Kanadu, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for inviting me into this beautiful environment. <laughs> it is. Thank you. Thank you. Kobina Kanadu is a professor of computer science at Northern Virginia Community College. Kobina Kanadu has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. The first Resonate Podcast Festival takes place next week, October 14 and 15 in Richmond, Virginia. The workshops and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vanderkolk of Love and Radio. ResonatePodfest.com. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. From cell phones to Alexa to our air conditioning, we're a society of things connected to the internet. And my next guest says there are benefits and risks to being so connected. Ha Jung Lee is director of Radford University's computer science program and also a visiting professor in the University of Virginia's computer science department. Ha Jung, more and more of our devices that we use in our homes and cars are connected to the internet these days, and it feels like manufacturing is definitely heading in the direction of computer-assisted devices? Yeah, yeah. Like, long time ago, we do have, like, very uniform type of computer, but now we have, like, different type of computing devices, which include laptops, watch, smartwatch, smartphone, and there are so many different type of things. It seems like, well, that's great. They're also posing risks for people, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Surely, surely. You've heard the term Internet of Things these days a lot. And by having Internet of Things, we just try to interconnect multiple different types of devices like you just mentioned, uh, including sensors and data storage and like data processing capabilities and like surely connected to the Internet. And uh, like using that kind of Internet of Things, we basically will be able to tailor the service to the users by, you know, collecting those kind of information. So uh, that kind of service can be provided by monitoring environment 
And not only monitoring the environment, we also pick up some status of the users. Uh, like for instance, like in case that we want to assist senior citizen medically, then picking up the status of like the users could be one of the data that we can use as a, as a part of Internet of Things to provide a good service. But anyway, by having that collected data, we can provide a tailored service to the users by in Internet of Things. And like when I say users, that users can include, you know, customers and surely industry and organizations and governments and like other different kind of parties in there. Who do you think is most driving development of the Internet of Things? Is it, is it the military or is it more big industry like Amazon and Google? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I'm sure that both or all yeah. <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, for instance, uh, the military, in the, for the military use, we, I mean, they or we want to monitor a lot of, you know, stuff in the environment to do something or to make a decision or something. So, so definitely military and not only in the military. I mean, there are so many, so many research which was in, initiated uh, for the military use um, at the early stage, but that kind of service can be, uh, you know, available, might be available like in a later time. Like in internet, even the internet itself was initiated, not for the general citizen, but these days we are using internet. Everybody um, are using internet, but so so similarly, like we have that kind of situation. Anyway, so it's it's both, it's all. How is the internet growing? As you're teaching students year after year, the internet is changing, and the capabilities of what can what services could be offered because of how connected and powerful the internet is is changing. Mm-hmm. What are you noticing? Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have some kind of smart city structure. We can get cool service. So for, so for instance, like I visited Seoul in South Korea last year. They have a smart city infrastructure for public transportation. They locate the buses, a small monitor at each bus stop shows where the bus are and how long it'll take them to arrive at the bus stop. They oh, that's also, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. <laughs> it was, and then they also have smartphone app to provide that information. So it was really convenient. And in fact, Blacksburg, Virginia also provide similar application for Virginia transit versus buses that became available by having this kind of Internet of Things type of structure. What else did you notice in Seoul that made it a smart city? Yeah, I mean, so Seoul, like, also have a very good uh, metropolitan subway systems. In South Korea, features 10 subway lines, which are interconnected each other. They provide an app showing when the next train will arrive (laughs) and how long it will take to get from one station to another, including the time to change trains in real time. So (laughs) it was very useful to use. As the capabilities have grown, what Mm. are also the risks associated with the Internet of Things and this increased power and connectivity? You you know, you've, you've heard the ring camera hack in Mississippi, right? Right. Yeah, so all the company announced that they resolved the, that issue. We have a never-ending battle <laughs> between hackers and cybersecurity experts. And we are in a similar situation in privacy, which means we want to provide privacy, but there have always been people who find a way to break it in. <laughs> and it's like never-ending battle. While we are putting an effort to provide privacy, Sometimes we need to wait on putting certain technology in the market until we have a solution to protect us and then protect others. We need to remember that there are unidentified security and privacy problems in the network environment as well. For instance, like according to you know, Professor uh, Jason Hong at Carnegie Mellon University, he 
shared four new IoT challenges for privacy and security, like which include like you know four items. Number one, intimacy of devices and data. That means we have smartphone and other IoT devices around us all the time. So those can catch more information about you and me <laughs> and our lifestyle than before. Right. And second, uh, he also talked about physical safety, meaning that it is possible that we might have new kind of ransomware. We might be locked out of our own house if somebody gain an access to your lock, which is kind of connected to the Internet of Things, then maybe you will not be able to get into the house until you pay some ransom or something. I mean, like in, in most of the cases, right. even though you pay ransom, they're not going to keep the control back. <laughs> so, right. But anyway, like that's kind of difficulties that we could encounter. And then here's another example under that category. So what if there are malicious attempt to harm a person by gaining an access to implanted medical devices? then that can risk a life of that person. So that's really serious problem which can happen. And then we also have, for instance, autonomous car and autonomous drones. Again, if somebody, some malicious person gain an excess, then maybe use those autonomous car and autonomous drone to attack something, attack somebody, attack some infrastructure, then that's also a very serious problem as well. So those kind of risks is out there. And as a third uh, risk, he talked about awareness of devices. Like sometimes, even though Alexa is on all the time, uh, we do not aware of that. So true. Yeah. And sometimes we forget, even though we knew, we forget. So so basically we often forget and are not aware that the IoT device is on. So we just do the things, very private things without aware of that, then that could be, you know, problem. And then the fourth one he talked about was complexity and scale. So basically we might encounter some unexpected behavior <laughs> that comes from the, the users of IoT devices. <laughs> so for instance, let's say when we talk to IoT device that we are on, I mean, we are using in the street, the people in the street might think that we are very strange. Do you mean we might shout at some device and then someone would attack us thinking we're shouting at them. Is that the kind of example he means? Yeah. yeah. Right, definitely. <laughs> so for instance, like, let's say if we have, let's say we do have IoT, some Internet of Things device designated for a certain type of service. And if that device try to do something else, which is kind of not a normal function. It is possible that that is some kind of indication of something happened. <laughs> so he proposed to, you know, learn that kind of patterns in case that we observe some kind of strange patterns from particular type of device that could be a maybe possible indication of something is going on. Do you think he's one of those scientists who adheres to the notion that we should be fearful of AI intelligence having the capability of harming humans? Oh, like I say already, you know, by saying never-ending battle, yes, there's a possibility. But since we recognize the possibility, we will will try not to that, make that happen. <laughs> so it's like... Keep putting safeguards in. Definitely. So like I already told you, even though we do have a technology, if we cannot protect ourselves against that technology, we have to hold that technology to make it available to people. So right. it, it's going to be a similar situation, even in like machine learning, even in those kind of things. That's my, I mean, it is possible there are a different group of person who has a different opinion. 
But in my opinion, I think protecting people uh, must have a highest priority in this technology scene as well. Well, Ha Chung Lee, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Mm, thank you. Ha Chung Lee is director of Radford University's Computer Science Program and a visiting professor in the University of Virginia's Computer Science Department. houses are smart these days, and Murat Kuzlu is collecting data from smart homes and businesses that he says may help us better respond to growing energy concerns. Murat Kuzlu is a professor of engineering at Old Dominion University. Murat, let me start by asking you, do you have what you'd call a smart home yourself? I have smart devices, but I cannot say fully smart home. So partially, I am using smart devices, for example, thermostat. So I am using a thermostat to control my uh, home heating and cooling. And usually it saves my money, to be honest, because sometimes I forget the set point temperature very low, even though I, I'm not home. So through to my smartphone, connect to my smart thermostat and increase the temperature a little. That way I can save money even though I'm not home. So tell me about the data that you are collecting from smart homes or businesses and what you want to do with it. We are collecting very simple data, only temperature set point, and also what is the temperature in the house at that time. We would like to predict how much energy we use. And also we look at the energy saving potential. For example, if we decrease or increase the set point temperature only one degree, we would like to calculate or predict how much energy we save and save money as well. When it comes to your own research, what do you see as a possible outcome down the road for a use for the kinds of things that you're looking at now? Maybe two main objectives. First, increase the or maximize the comfortability. The other thing, energy saving. So that's the two benefit to me. So machine learning, again, uh, they can learn my behavior, what I, what I like or what I don't like. That way they can, this kind of system, improve my comfortability. The other way, how they can save the energy so nobody is there. They can turn off the light or reduce the brightness level or I am not at home or I am in the other room. Somehow they re increase or decrease the set point temperature depending on season. And that way we can save energy again. Who will be most interested in your research? Commercial buildings. They are actually more interested in my research because I am telling them through the smart system, I can save your energy. Also, I can improve your air quality. And also we can save your energy. I mean, your money, because also they have budget to spend money to purchase new hardware, new software, or look for other solutions. Huge buildings are such energy consumers, right? And it's very yes. costly to maintain them. And there must be so many efficiencies that could be built in. Exactly, you're right. Also quality. When we said comfortability, also healthy, important. For example, some room, you know, there is a conference room, maybe 50 people can be there at the same time. That way, CO2 level can go high easily. So anyway, what I'm saying through the smart system, first, we can maintain or we can help the building managers maintain their building through the smart system. And again, we can save energy, we can improve their comfortability, and also, we can integrate this kind of system, integrate the grid easily. Grid operators are interested in more, actually, because most energy consumption because of the commercial building, not residential building. Maybe 20, 30 percent of the overall power consumption comes from residential, excuse me, commercial buildings. Also, if their kind of impact is a lot, 
compare the residential customer, it means through the one residential building, maybe you can save sometimes megawatt level, but the house or residential level only a few kilowatts sometimes. What are the kinds of savings possible now with large commercial buildings that we just didn't see 10 years ago, let's say? What sort of things can we do differently now that are really making things more comfortable but also more efficient? Yes. First, potentially, is lighting. So we just come up with what is the kind of comfort light level. And smart system adjusts that one because some buildings get the light from the outside and they can, this kind of system help the reduce the energy because they can adjust the lighting level or brightness level first. Because some lights, they're open all the time, even though nobody is still there on through the motion right. sensor, so they can be off or again, change the brightness level, not turn off completely. Same thing for HVAC system or heating and cooling system. Through the smart system first, you can monitor, you can maybe come up with the maximum and minimum set point. So this is a kind of limit that one. Also, we can integrate some additional sensor to detect the human. Nobody is there. We can increase or set point temperature again based on the season. And that way we can save huge amount of energy. Main potential again, lighting and cooling system. Is there a building that you've seen designed fairly recently that has fascinated you because it has done this so well? Yes, I used to uh, work that kind of building in Arlington. The building takes the light all the day. There is no lighting in the room. The lighting or brightness level can be very low from the light because the building gets the light from outside first thing. The other thing, that building has a renewable energy integration. On the roof, they put the renewable energy, the solar PV, and daytime, so it can generate around 10 kilowatt energy at a time, and the building consumption reduced right away. The other thing also, insulation. So when they build the building, they come up uh, with a kind of solution to circulate the air very efficiently. That way, the building, I can say, very, very efficient building, and through the renewable integration, the energy consumption pretty much low compared to the traditional building. It's fun to try to get better and better at this, isn't it? Exactly. It's getting and better. Also, the material is important. You know, uh, the outside and inside uh, temperature difference. If your isolation is not enough good, it can get the hot, uh, hot weather outside easily, also cold weather. In this case, you have to run your heating and cooling system more and more. But now, again, they are using good material. Also, they calculate the angle, the location of the building, and they come up with the solution to use the or reduce the energy as much as possible. Again, the other thing, renewable energy integration. If you put solar roof, uh, solar PV on the roof, if it is connected to the grid, so daytime, your consumption very, very low because what you generate, you can use right away. What do you say to people who are skeptical about buildings and houses not being secure because there is this connectivity to the internet? Yeah, they are totally right. It means somebody can hack their system, they can control their devices, not only heating and cooling, also lock, smart locks. You know, if somebody hack your lock, they can get in your room, first thing. Also, most of people worry about the privacy because their system connect to maybe Alexa, maybe other uh, smart hub, somebody can take their uh, information. And they are totally right. But what I can say, there are some solutions. They cannot control everything, but they can control some part of that one. For example, their password can be complicated. They can control that one. However, clouds, security, or hub security, they cannot control. Here we a kind of rely on the company. For example, Alexa rely on the Amazon and we trust them. And what I can say, I trust them because they really, really care this kind of security. So that way we shouldn't worry about that much. Just we worry about our site. We shouldn't share personal information, username, password with others, or we can use more complex password. Also, when we select the device, we have to make sure we select 
a kind of secure devices or support uh, secure communication. Right. There's a lot that's in our hands, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Some of them we can control, some of them we cannot. For example, online shopping, you know, we go and to put our credit card. Also somebody hacked, but again, somehow we trust that company. For example, you go Amazon.com, I put all kind of my information, credit card information, but I trust them. And same thing here, we should trust which product we are using, especially if we are using a smart hub or any data collection point or cloud platform we are using, somehow we have to trust them. Marat Kuslu, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time also. Murat Kuzlu is a professor of engineering at Old Dominion University. The first Resonate Podcast Festival is next week, October 14 and 15 in Richmond. The workshops and performances include Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vanderkolk of Love and Radio. For ticket information, go to resonatepodfest.com. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner, Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo, our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance and to Maynard Scales of WNSB. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.